All right, we're in Colossians, so you can turn there. All right, we're picking it up in verse 3 of Colossians. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your mercy upon us today. We pray, God, with the upcoming uh, children's drama that the gospel would go forth and bear much fruit. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to use us to advance your kingdom, to be uh, the light bearers of truth in, a, in an age that desperately needs you. So help us, Lord, now to walk in grace, to walk in truth, um, to walk in spirit and truth, Lord, and to hear from you now rightly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're finishing up our series today on the flourishing church. And the question we're going to um, answer today, which we have really been answering over the, follow, uh, the previous weeks, is what does it look like for a church to flourish? So when you um, look at what are called church growth books, um, <clears throat> usually they're, you know, pastors or leaders in the church will read them as how to get your church to grow. And most of the time, the focus is not on necessarily quality, but it's on quantity. Um, that's one of their, their challenges. So it's, it's about numbers, numbers, numbers. Well, numbers don't usually tell the story, right? Um, that can be uh, and is very externally focused. But I appreciated one book I read um, on church growth and because a lot of times it, 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 it's like, oh, how to do this thing or do this thing or do this thing. And this book started out and was basically like, preach the word. Like, that's the foundation. So it said, hey, before we even talk about potentially things you might do, let's start with the essentials that you have to have. And it was like, preach the word and pray. If, you're gonna, if you want to grow your church in a faithful and biblical way, that's where it needs to start. Remember what Jesus said. You shall be my witnesses, right? You shall be my witnesses, Acts chapter 1. He didn't say you shall be my marketers, but you shall be my witnesses. So if the church and the people in the church are the witnesses, what does that mean that we're doing? We're witnessing, right? And what are we witnessing about? Or what are we testifying to? Like Jesus, what he's done, the gospel, we're sharing that with people. So we're, we are the witnesses. So <clears throat> we're not the marketers. And here's the thing, a growing church, think about this for a moment. When you talk numerically, a growing church doesn't necessarily mean a flourishing church. A church can be a growing numerically, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's flourishing. It just means there's bodies coming in the door. Now, it can be a sign, but it's not a guaranteed sign. In a declining church, that doesn't necessarily mean a church that isn't flourishing. Maybe the church is declining in numbers, 
because the pastor is preaching the truth and the people don't like it, some of them, right? So they're voting with their feet. So we got to recognize those, both those realities. Numbers can be misleading, and numbers don't always tell the whole story. Think about it. When we talk about um, growing and flourishing, there is nothing wrong with attracting crowds. There's really not. Uh, when we have our fall festival, right, we're wanting to attract a crowd. But what's our purpose in doing so? Like, to reach them with the gospel, we're trying to fulfill what Matthew 28 talks about. We want to make disciples. Not just make converts, but we want to make disciples. And think of Jesus himself. Did Jesus attract a crowd? Yeah, some pretty large ones, right? At least thousands we know for sure. Um, The key is, when the crowds are attracted, you can't water down the message. You can't water down the message. And the challenge is, when you get the crowds and you don't want to lose the crowds, then you are potentially tempted not to deliver the word that they really need to hear. You're tempted to deliver uh, not so tough of a word. You're tempted to deliver uh, what I call like the sugar water, you know? Um, what does is, what is sugar attract? I mean, it attracts all sorts of different insects, right? Animals, ants, whatever. You, you spill something, what's attracted to the sugar? The ants, right? They just come out of nowhere. <clears throat> Uh, too many want to be just a part of the crowd. So it's okay for the crowds to come, and it's okay to initially be a part of the crowd, but when you think about the crowds, even just with Jesus, what attracted them? Well, yes, Jesus, but part of what the attraction was was in what he was doing. Even if you think about uh, Jesus in John 6, if you turn there, we can can see uh, a few things that I just want to briefly point out John chapter 6 this is where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and so it says verse 5 lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him Jesus said to Philip where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat so then there's, there's this testing of their faith. Jesus is about to do this miracle. So he, feed, he feeds the 5,000. We get that story. Then the next passage, starting in verse 16, is when Jesus walks on the water. But notice what it says in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Right? So that's the crowds. The crowds, they're seeking Jesus. But notice what he says. When they found him on the other side, verse 25 of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I mean, he's calling them out for why they're seeking after him, right? He said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. 
I mean, here, this is obviously early in Jesus' ministry, chapter 6 of John, relatively towards the beginning. The crowds are being attracted, and Jesus, if he wants to keep growing those crowds, he should keep giving them the sugar water. He should keep giving them the easy things to hear. But what does he do? He immediately calls them out on why they're seeking after him. You're coming because you got full from the meal I just gave you. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse, let's pick it up in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They're not liking the teaching that they're hearing. Right now, you know, 20 verses earlier, they're getting in a boat seeking after him. Jesus calls them out, you're seeking after me because of what I, what I can do for you, what I can give you. <clears throat> you're here for the freebies. So then he gives them this, and they're grumbling about it. Then notice he goes on, and he's sharing with them, 50, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He's like, you got, you got a problem with the teaching? I'm going to keep teaching it. I'm not going to back off. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So the crowds are gathered. What does he do? Does he give them some simple, easy teaching? No, he's like, I'm, I'm going I'm to give them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I'm going to give it to them straight. So he's doing that. Then he goes on. Oh, you guys want to dispute about what, what I'm saying? Let me, make, let me go on. Jesus said to them, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Then notice what it says in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is this Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And then look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And I, I got in my margins here. This is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Like you are listening to the Son of God. And you are hearing his truth preached. And you reject it. So we should not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if we're going to preach the word, 
and, and, and be rejected. It's really the word they're rejecting. It's really Jesus they're rejecting. But we should not be surprised if we're going to give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth and have people rejected it. If they did it to Jesus, they will do it to us. But it's one of the saddest verses. Why? Because it, it's a hard saying that he's given them. And his, his disciples, we find out, some of them weren't really disciples. They were just part of the crowd. They're just there for the free meal. They're just there for the freebies. They're just there for the healings. Listen, this is where we can get tripped up if we're not careful. We only follow Jesus so far. And sometimes it looks like we're willing to follow him pretty far. Like, they got in the boats, right? I mean, that, you know, probably not everybody had a boat back then, right? So somehow they got in boats, and they were paying for a ride or, or getting a ride from a friend or something to follow after Jesus. That looks like they were kind of serious about seeking him, doesn't it? But Jesus revealed the state of their heart. Why? Because Jesus loves us enough that he's not just going to let us go along and think everything's okay and fine and dandy when it's not. So he gives them this hard word. What, what does it do? It exposes the hearts of the people. Look what, look what Jesus said in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? You could probably take it a couple different ways, but he's asking them that question. And look what Simon Peter says, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the twelve, they don't, they don't walk away. The true disciples stay with Jesus and probably others. But the twelve, they stay faithful. Listen, if we want to be true disciples of Jesus, we have to be willing to have the hard words of Jesus shared with us, and we have to be willing to receive them. And we've been, I've been preaching about the word and the word and the word for the last few weeks. And we, let's not just be speakers. Let's be people who actually do it. So Jesus didn't hold back. And he didn't hold back the hard teaching to the disciples. He, you know, he, he, he could have just pulled the 12 disciples off to the side and be like, okay, like the crowds aren't ready for this teaching yet. No, I mean, he, he gave it to them straight. So, <clears throat> when the crowds are attracted, the church has to continue to be faithful to preach the word. The full word, the entire word, the whole counsel of God. And it can't just say it believes things on paper and then never preach about those things. If it's going to say it, it needs to preach about it. It needs to be faithful to the whole counsel of God the things that are easy to say, and the things that are tough to say. The flourishing church is known for both what it is and what it does. Look back in Colossians. Notice a few things here. And we've talked about some of these before. The flourishing church has faith. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And the, the flourishing church has love the faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints. So it has the faith. It has the love. 
It has a hope because of the hope, verse 5, laid up for you. And what's this word doing? They have the word and it's bearing fruit, which has come to you. What's come to you? The word of the truth, the gospel. So they've got the gospel. It's come to them and what's it doing? It's bearing fruit and increasing. Well, what helps a person grow? Notice here that Paul is writing this letter and what what is his aim? He's like, big overall aim is to help the church grow, right? He's wanting them to grow. What's Epaphras' aim? He wants the church to flourish. He wants it to do well. So you have these leaders here. Guess what? Leaders are important to flourishing. You got to have someone leading. If you don't have someone leading, there's chaos. So the leaders are imperative. Sheep need shepherds. What's Paul doing here? He's shepherding them. What's Epaphras doing? He's been shepherding to the Colossian church. He's been their shepherd and ministering to them time and time again. In the past, we've talked about this just a couple weeks ago. You need, so you need the leaders and the pastors. You need right thinking, the orthodoxy. You have to say the right things, and you have to think the right things. Okay? Sometimes we can say things, but we don't necessarily think them. We can say things, but we don't necessarily think them, meaning we don't necessarily think that to be true ourselves. We can parrot a whole lot of information. And there's a place for that, especially when kids are younger. A lot of times we're training them, and they're parroting information. They can say it, but did they really think it? Had they really made that connection about what is transgression against God? Well, not when they're real young. But we can start to inculcate those truths into them so that they're at least saying them. But then we want them to start thinking them, which means what? They're believing them. They're believing those truths. So we want right thinking. We want orthodoxy. That means we need instruction in the Word. We need instruction in the Word, which is what we're getting right now. Instruction in the Word. So you want to sit under the faithful exposition of God's Word. You want to be in Bible studies where they're digging into God's Word. You want to be in life groups where they're challenging one another to walk in the faith. Why? How are they doing that? Basing it on the Scriptures. So right thinking. Then there's the right living. That was mentioned as well. The words and the actions match up. The fancy word is orthopraxy. So you have orthodoxy, straight teaching, orthopraxy, straight living, or the right practice. They do the right things. If we say the right things, but we don't do the right things, do we, do we really believe it? I mean, overall, if we looked at your life, now, we're all probably hypocrites in some form or fashion. Because we probably say things and then we don't always follow through to do it. But I'm saying overall, if we took a, a, a little video of your life for a week and could flash it before us and watch it in 30 seconds, is the, is the right speaking matching up with the right or with the living that you're doing? Is it right living? So if we say the right things, we, we need to make sure we do the right things. If we have the orthodoxy, we need to make sure we have the orthopraxy the right living. So those are a few things we need, pastors, right thinking, right living. But you know what we need? We need other growing believers. Imagine right now, if you were the only person in this church sitting in this room, and you came today, and justice because he loved you so much, he and Lord came up here and did worship. (laughs) What would be missing 
body, right? What makes up a church? Like, yes, many different things, but the people, you got to have the body. So other growing believers, think of people for a moment. Think of people who inspire you to keep following Jesus. What is it about them that encourages you to keep following Jesus? I mean, it might be their attitude. It might be their words, like they verbally encourage you. Their attitude, like they're always upbeat. And that you can tell, like they're filled with the Spirit, and He's just pouring out of them. It might be their lifestyle. It might be their example that they set. They're always serving here or there. I mean, there might be different things. It might be their ministry. It might be how they've spoken into your life. It might be how they carry themselves in trials and challenges. Listen, I'm encouraged by others' pursuit of Jesus. And when I see your pursuit, that encourages me to keep pursuing him. And I'm encouraged to see you ministering to others. Okay? Guess what that does? That encourages me to minister to others. And to me, it's more impactful. And when we talk about, like, people that we look up to, like, we can think of, um, you know, people that we have never met and probably will never meet, right? Big-name Christian leaders Um, that definitely um, have earned respect for sure. But to me, it's more impactful at the local level when when I know people. Because then you kind of know the nitty-gritty, and you sometimes see them get tripped up, or you've seen their bad days. But guess what? They're still pursuing Jesus. So to me, it's more impactful when, when I know someone, and I know they're going through something, like, most of those big names that we think of, we're, we're never going to know their, their personal struggles, really. Not, 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 not really. Maybe they might share some of them. We're probably not going to know if they're going through something with their, their son or daughter. Probably not. They might allude to it. But to me, that's why when, when, when I know believers and, and I know more about their life and what's going on and what they're, they're struggling with and what they're dealing with, and in, 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 in the midst of all those things, in the midst of those trials, those challenges, like they still seek him and the, the, the fruit of praise is still on their lips about God, that's powerful. And that encourages me to keep seeking Jesus. And then guess what happens? Then, then we get into a similar situation like that ourselves where we're challenged or we're struggling. And, and what do we say to ourselves? I'm like, hey, hey if, if, if my sister over there was making it and made it, then I can make it. And if my brother over there was dealing with that tough situation, then, then I can make it too. And maybe I go to, if, if, if the situations are similar, maybe I, I even go to that brother or sister and be like, hey, help me out, pray for me. How did you make it? Right, because they've, they've, they've gone down that road before. It's amazing sometimes how the Lord uses our, our past sufferings and challenges to minister to others, right? So we need other believers. Of course we need God. I mean, the triune God is all throughout this passage. Look back in Colossians. I mean, verse 1, there's, there's Jesus. There's God, the Father mentioned. Uh, verse 2, there's Jesus again mentioned, and, and God is mentioned. Verse 3, there's God and Jesus again. <clears throat> you, I mean, you can't even get past the first three verses. that They've already been mentioned six times total, right? The Father, the Son, the Father, and the Son. Where's the Spirit? Well, <clears throat> Paul saves him towards the end because he's, he's talking about the, the, that, the bearing fruit that's occurring, right? And then he goes, verse 8, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 
And in verse 6, what does he say? In the whole world, it is bearing fruit. Well, what's bearing fruit? Well, the gospel is bearing fruit, but how does the gospel bear fruit? It's really by the Spirit. By the Spirit that bears fruit. And when we think of what's necessary for the flourishing church, absolutely crucial is the fruit of the Spirit. And sometimes, you know, I have people that visit or are thinking about visiting, and, and they're like, is your church spirit-filled? Now, what does that mean to them? Normally it means, does your church speak in tongues? That's usually what it means. And if a church speaks in tongues, it, it's spirit-filled. And if it doesn't, it's not spirit-filled. That's a lousy way to look at things. Speaking in tongues doesn't prove or disprove your church is spirit-filled. What should spirit-filled mean? It means the work of the Spirit is evident in the life of the church. And I remember uh, I went to a, a very reformed Calvinistic seminary. I remember one of my professors saying that if, if he had a new believer and there was a town and there was only two churches in the town and one of them was a reformed Calvinistic church but it was dead, and the other was a charismatic Arminian church, but there was life, he would tell the new believer to go to that church that had life. Think about that. Where do we want people plugging in at? Where do we want new believers going? Where they're going to get fed and where they're going to grow. The Spirit brings life. And if the Spirit is present guess what? He always produces fruit. If you have the Spirit, you'll have the fruit. And what's the Spirit doing for the Colossians? Well, he's producing the faith and the hope and the love that's already been mentioned. So if you have the Spirit, you'll have fruit, because he always produces fruit. I mean, think about the Spirit. Like, if the analogy was a tree, I mean, do you think he's just got like one little apple growing on him? No, I mean, he's like this luscious apple tree with tons of fruit, right? Well, guess what he does? If he's living inside you, there should be tons of fruit being produced because the Spirit does not skimp on his fruit. So sometimes it's like, you know, he sees like, he, he looks at us and he like sees a little bud on us. And he's like, come on, you can do it. I'm inside you, right? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians talks about. The fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit is from Him. It's His. And the fruit He gives to us, it's His to give, and guess what? He gives in abundance. So if you're lacking, that's no slight on the Spirit, it's a slight on yourself. You, know, you, you go through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like, if, if you're lacking, I mean, it's... I hope you're not blaming the Spirit. I hope you're, you're blaming yourself. Because if you're a believer, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you should have the fruit of the Spirit. Because he doesn't skimp on his Spirit. Look at, look at Psalm 65. So it starts out, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. 
Then he goes on in verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the forest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Now, if God is doing that physically for the earth to bless his people, how much more so will he do internally? He's an abundant God. He overflows in his blessings. He overflows in his physical blessings to us. But I'd say much more so even with the spiritual blessings. And think about it for a moment with the fruit of the Spirit. Those fruit that I mentioned, like which fruit do you lack the most? I think we asked this at, at a men's study a few weeks ago, or maybe it was at one of the life groups or something. Like most people always say love. Nothing wrong with that. You, you probably lack it. <clears throat> I was at McDonald's the other day in the drive-thru, and by the way, if you know I'm desperate if you see me in the drive-thru at McDonald's, okay, getting food for myself. Now, my kids, some of my kids really like eating there. It's almost like a staple for them or something. But if I'm going to get food for them from McDonald's, I'm, I'm going to go get food for myself from someplace much more healthy, like Taco Bell, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> but I'm in the drive-thru, uh, and, and God's been teaching me, like, when I think about which fruit, at least what, what he's been teaching me lately is like, I, I need, I'm lacking in patience, okay? And drive throughs and traffic and driving are great opportunities to learn that. Um, so I'm in the drive through and um, if you've ever been to the drive through at McDonald's, you probably have it at least once. They, they have like the two drive throughs you know? And then they kind of go into each other, and then there's the two windows. Well, anyway, I'm in like the short end of the drive through and this other lady is, is in the long end, and I'm like, it's really my turn to go, and I've already placed my order. And, I, and I'm like, I bet she's going to cut me off. <clears throat> and I'm like right there ready to go to have my turn because the person in front of her just went. And sure enough, it, this, the, the room opens up, and, and she starts pulling forward. And then she looks over at me. And I'm like, I point to myself. I'm like, like that's my spot. <laughs> and then she looks at me. And she like does a double take, and then she waves me off. <laughs> and I was like, and it was like this little old lady, okay? And I was like, Grandma, you aren't in a good mood today. And I was like, you know, you are so blessed by the Lord right now that the Lord is teaching me about patience. Else I would be laying on my horn, okay? <laughs> yes, yeah, he's teaching me about patience clearly, right? Um, on, a, on, a, on a worse day, I probably would have honked the horn, okay? Just being real. So he's teaching me about patience. What, is, what fruit are you lacking that God's probably trying to get your attention about, that he's probably trying to teach you about, that he's trying to work on you about? Because we need both the Spirit and the Word. If you have the Spirit and the Word, guess what? 
you have life. Look at John. We're back in, if you, <clears throat> we read it, but let's just read it again. John 6. Notice what he says, John 6. Which is really important, by the way, for understanding the whole passage. John 6, he says, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Does the Spirit, like, just zap people and they're saved? Well, maybe in one sense. But, but you have to have the Word. You have to have the Word. There's no example in the New Testament of someone getting saved without hearing the Gospel. You have to have the Word. Okay? So you have the Word, and then the Spirit comes in and does His work. Why is it that two people can hear the Gospel and one of them gets saved, hearing the same gospel message from the same person, and one of them doesn't. Because one of them just has the word, and one of them has the spirit and the word. you got to have the spirit and the word. right? The spirit is the one who regenerates. Look at Romans 8. Look what it says, Romans 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. How does the life come? Through the Spirit, right? But you have to have the Word, and you have to have the Spirit, and what does the Spirit bring? He brings life. That's what He brings. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives. What does the Spirit give? Life. The Spirit gives life. Two more verses, Galatians chapter 6. Verse 7, Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what are we sowing, brothers and sisters? That's really the question. What are we sowing? God says in verse 7, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. We sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. One more verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, okay, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Again, you got to have the word and you have to have the spirit. How did it come to them? It wasn't just the word. Yes, the word did come, but the word came in power and in the Holy Spirit in, in full conviction. We've already known from our study in 1 Thessalonians what happened after that. They got saved. They bore much fruit. They were an example to others. So when we talk about a flourishing church, listen, you can grow in a non-flourishing church, and you can also not grow in a flourishing church. And sometimes, you know, people are like, oh, I'm not growing, I'm not growing. Well, that might be a statement about the church, or you, or both. But we automatically assume it's not us, right? Uh, how could it be me? Got to be my church. No, don't blame the church. When the word is planted on good soil, what happens? What happens? Produces fruit, right? So if you if you got intake of the word, well then you need to be the good soil so that'll produce the good fruit. The flourishing church impacts not just the near community but the far community. Notice back in Colossians <clears throat> look what's happening. That word's come to them, it says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit. I like how one theologian said it. It is confined, talking about God's word, it is confined to no place or people, but is designed to be a universal religion. It offers the same blessedness in heaven to all. You know, and our, our church theme for the year is all of Christ for what? All of life. Jesus must be first. All of Christ for all of life. He must be our everything. Not just, we just can't have a part of Jesus. Like, oh, we like the, the first five chapters of John, Jesus, but then we get to the sixth chapter of Jesus and we don't like that. No, we, we got to take all of Jesus, not just part of Jesus, all of Jesus, the real Jesus, all of him. And he comes first in all things. All things, all areas, all decisions, Jesus has to be there at the front with you choosing him and basing your lifestyle on him. You bow to his will. You submit to his authority. You serve him and him alone. Picture in your mind for a moment like what you would idolize or think of as the best, if you had to put together like a best church in your mind, like what would it look like? Do you think there's unbelievers in that church? I mean, likely. In fact, I hope so. Why? Because if, if, if the best church is really the best church, guess what? They're going to be reaching people, Right? So there's going to be unbelievers in their midst. The visible church will always have unbelievers mixed in. Right? The visible church will always have unbelievers mixed in. We might not know who they are, but they're likely there. Think of the parable that Jesus told of the tares and the wheats, right? The tares are among the wheat. You don't always know it right away. I pray regularly that if there are any members of this church that aren't saved, they'd get saved. So you can be in the best church in the world, 
it's not given that you'll grow. Why? Well, one, you might, you might be one of those unbelievers. But two, growth isn't automatic. If growth was automatic, people would never fall into sin. People would never backslide. They'd keep growing automatically. But growth isn't automatic. Growth doesn't just happen. Now, some of you are gardeners, and some of you pretend to be gardeners. But if you took, took some seed and just throw it on your basement floor, like, what's going to happen? Like, nothing, right? It's probably dark in your basement, probably not much natural light. I'm hoping there's not too much dirt. <clears throat> Seeds don't automatically grow. True? What do they, what do they need? They need? They need nutrients. They need soil. Well, what do we have to do to grow? Well, we need nutrients, right? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. We'll, we'll pick it up in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So he's talking about the context here. He's talking about discipline. But notice what he says in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then he adds this, because it's important, to those who have been trained by it. I mean, you can, you can be disciplined and not learn anything from it, right? And sometimes God is disciplining you, and he's disciplining you, and, and you just you have your ears shut. And he's wanting to train you. And guess what? He disciplines you just like he says earlier, because he loves you. But you have to receive the discipline to those who have been trained by it. Let God's discipline serve as training for you. And then he goes on, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. And look what he says, without which no one will see the Lord. I want to see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord? Then we're being told to strive for holiness. Strive for holiness. So this word strive, it means to do something with intense effort and with definite purpose or goal. 
Do something with intense effort and with definite purpose or goal. We are striving for holiness. Well, what's, what is the fruit of the Spirit? That's part of that holiness. If you have the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, you're doing pretty good with the holiness. But we need to strive for it. Strive for holiness. What are we seeking when we come on Sundays? Are we looking for our weekly Jesus injection? Like if you miss for a couple weeks, you, you shouldn't feel out of sorts. Because you're missing the body. You're missing worship, corporate worship. And, and so in one sense, I, yeah, we all kind of need a, a weekly Jesus. and We need a daily injection. <clears throat> but what are we seeking on Sundays? Like sometimes we're coming more to get than to give. And I'd say if that's the case, then we have it backwards. And we're really not understanding why we're coming. Like, imagine taking that approach with some um, important emissary. You're invited to meet with him, and you think to yourself, um, how can I have a meeting with him that makes me feel great? That I want to walk away feeling pumped up and energized. No, you're meeting with the emissary, and you're concerned about what he needs and requires. When we're coming into church and meeting with the God of the universe, our Heavenly Father, we should be concerned about what does he want from us. What does he want from us? So then it becomes, what do I need to give to him? What do I need to give? A lot of times, people come to church to get. That's their primary motive. That's a wrong primary motive. You're coming to give. First and foremost, if you're coming here, it should be to give worship to the greatest God ever. And his son, Jesus. We're coming to give him the worship that he's due. We give the worship with our voices. We give the worship because the preaching, it's really not just like a monologue. It's almost like a conversation, not in the way that some of those church growth books talk about, but there's, there's a back and forth, so to speak. <clears throat> You're not passive agents. You're actively feasting on the word that is given to you. And that is worship. So you're coming here to give worship to the Lord. That's the primary now, I believe as you're giving, you're giving the Lord your worship. You're giving the Lord your offerings. You're giving the Lord your heart. You're giving the Lord your giftings. You know, there's people in the nursery right now. There's people um, serving the children right now. And in one sense, they're missing out. In another sense, they're not missing out. But in one sense, they're missing out. They're missing out on this. Why? Because they're giving, right? They're giving. So that, in one sense, so you can get, if you think about it. But they're giving. And I think, and would put before you, as you're giving to the Lord, guess what? In his mercy and grace and kindness and graciousness and love, he gives back to you. And you get. You get. You get blessed being in the presence of the Lord. Sometimes you get those feelings of awe and reverence. You get blessed by your brothers and sisters pouring into you. But guess what? It's almost like marriage, right? If it's all about me, 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 and what can I get, and then those two people are always thinking that, the other's never satisfied. But if we're more concerned about our spouse and how we can serve them, guess what? Both end up satisfied, right? But it's the same with us as the body. If we're coming, oh, what can I get? What can I get? What can I get? And that's all our attitude, and it's a selfish attitude, then guess what? We can walk away pretty empty. 
But if we're coming to give, we're coming to give, we're coming to give, and I'm giving to this brother who needs some help and this sister who needs some prayer, guess what? We all walk away very blessed, and we've been given much, and we get a whole lot. So we give primarily. So let's be... Be the church that you want your church to be. Be the church that you want your church to be. You can't complain about a deficiency in your church if you don't try to meet that deficiency. So you're like, oh, my, my church is lacking in friendliness. As you scoot out of the service as soon as the amen is said and never talk to anybody. No, be friendly. And my church is lacking evangelism as I have coworker after coworker after coworker I've never attempted to share with. And my church is lacking in discipleship, but I'm too busy to, to work with the guy who just got saved a couple weeks ago. No. Don't complain about a deficiency in your church if, if you're not going to help with that deficiency. Okay? Lacking in friendliness? Be friendly. Lacking in evangelism? Start sharing. Lacking in discipleship? Start discipling. I, I found this as I was preparing for my sermon this week. I thought it was pretty good. Here's what it said. And it was actually a covenant that uh, one church makes um, their people make. Um, as they join the church. This is my church. It is composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do a great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am generous. It will bring others into its fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. It will be a, choice, a church of loyalty and love, of faith and service, if I, who make it what it is, am filled with these. Therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of being all these things I want my church to be. Guess what? This is possible by the Spirit of God. We can only be the flourishing church if God himself is here in our midst and working in us and through us. Are you hearing me? That we are willing vessels to be molded, 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4, right? We're the, we're the vessels being molded. Now, what kind of clay are you? Are you the clay that, you know, when, you ever see that wheel spin? It gets fascinating, you know? <clears throat> and they can shape it all into all sorts of different, cool, probably all sorts of different things, but normally pots is what I see, right? Anyone ever do that before? Okay, that's pretty cool. I'm jealous. <clears throat> but... The potter can make the pot to be anything it wants, right? Right? Well, but eventually, what does the potter have to do with that pot? I mean, he takes it off whatever the, the little stand thing's called. <clears throat> I'm showing my ignorance here. And puts it into the oven or the fire, right? But then what happens? Then it, you know, does its thing. <laughs> and, it, and it no longer can be shaped, right? Well, guess what? Sometimes, if we're not careful, we're kind of like the pot that's coming out of the oven. Because it's like, we've been shaped, and we're like, nope, I'm not being shaped anymore. Like, this is my shape. Yeah, there's a little dent down here, and a little ding over here, and the lip's a little messed up, but it is what it is. No. Like, we're, we're, we should be believers that are always on that wheel, letting the Lord shape us and mold us however he wants. We should never, never, never be thinking like we're in that fire, all right? Why? Because once we're in the fire, like the work's done. No, we're still on the wheel. 
brothers and sisters. And God is molding us. So be moldable. Be moldable. And he's wanting to <clears throat> give and bless you with all sorts of different things. He's wanting to see more and more and more and more fruit. A lot of times, like, when people talk about fruit, they're like, oh, well, how many people did you share with? Or how many people are you discipling? Or how long did you pray? Those aren't necessarily bad questions. But when the Bible talks about fruit, those are some of the things. But the fruit of the Spirit isn't how many people you led to the Lord last week. You should be leading people to the Lord. But it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's those, right? That's where we abound. And guess what? If we're abounding in those things, then the sharing with the people and the discipling people and spending time in prayer are going to be a part of that. You could argue it follows it or precedes it I'd say both. The point is, let's be filled with the Spirit. The flourishing church is a Spirit-filled church. From the moment you walk in till the moment you leave, and every time in between the other 166 and a half hours or so, you're walking in the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. In the areas you're weak, and the areas you're falling short, you're on your knees crying out to the Lord to be gracious and merciful and to mold that little imperfection, that impatience needs to be molded out. That lack of love needs to be molded out. That lack of self-control needs to be molded out. And you're seeking the Lord and you're repenting and you're crying out to Him to change you. And then what are you doing? Striving for holiness. Striving for holiness. Intense effort designed to work towards God, right? We're being conformed to the image of his son. What a beautiful thing. You want to be conformed to your own image? No, that's awful. That's horrible. We're being conformed to the image of his son. That's what we're striving for. The holiness, that's Jesus, brothers and sisters. We're striving after him. And God tells us he is conforming us to the image of his son. What a beautiful picture and a beautiful thing he's doing in our lives. So stay on that wheel, all right? Stay on the wheel and keep being molded for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're on the wheel, and you have us, and you're doing all sorts of different stuff with us and through us. Lord, let us stay on the wheel that you can mold us exactly as you see fit to be an instrument to be used by you. Let us be that moldable clay, not that stuff that comes out of the fire that's hardened. Keep us soft, Father. Keep doing your work in us. May we continue to strive after you. We want to be people who are busy about the things of God. Who strive after Jesus. We want to flourish. And we want to help others flourish. For your glory. Amen.